All right, First Peter. We're going to begin today, Lord willing, a series. Uh, you never know how long these things are going to last, uh, but uh, we're going to try to uh, preach our way through the book of First Peter. If you're visiting with us, then this is, uh, this is our normal way of, uh, of handling the Bible and the teaching of the Bible here at Friendship Bible Church. Uh, we normally will take a book and we'll try to just preach through it. Not necessarily verse by verse, but certainly at, ver- at least section by section or thought by thought or ho- however the Lord leads. But we start at the beginning, we go to the end, and we try to leave nothing out. And so we're going to start now on First Peter, uh, started today, and go as long as the Lord would have us to. Today we're going to look at one verse. And one verse only, that is verse number one. So I want to make sure everybody is there. Is everybody there? All right. You look at your copy of the Scripture as I read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Father, we are so thankful for this book. And as we do this little introductory session today, I pray, Father, that you'll speak to our hearts and help us from it. Lord, even a verse uh, such as this has so much truth there that helps us as we delve into this book. So guide us, direct us, fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord God, to have nothing in my life. Forgive me if there's anything there that hinders. Uh, Lord, just, uh, just, just cleanse me of any sin that would, would prohibit my preaching well. And, and then just fill me with your spirit and help me to preach the Bible well today. It's your word. I pray it would come forth as your word. And I pray, Lord God, that... Uh, Whatever I need to say, I'd say, and whatever perhaps uh, I might tend to say that I shouldn't, you protect me from it. So just guide and direct, and bless this message as we introduce this wonderful book, First Peter. And we pray it in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. First Peter is a book about suffering. There's several key words and key thoughts in the book, but suffering is paramount. Suffering is the most prominent. At least 15 times in this letter we find references to suffering. The author used as many as eight different Greek words to describe suffering. Suffering is mentioned in every one of the five chapters. That would be a good study for you to just kind of go back and find every place that you can find suffering mentioned in each of the five chapters. So there's its primary theme. Suffering. But it's more than that. It's more than just a book about suffering. I mean, after all, suffering is a pretty ugly word. The dictionary defines suffering as the state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. Synonyms of the word suffering include adversity, anguish, difficulty, hardship, misery, misfortune, torment, affliction, etc. It's not a very uplifting topic. And considering that First Peter is so heavily concerned with that concept, this concept of suffering, we might think it is a sad and hopeless book, but that would not be the case. Not only is it about suffering, it is a book that is filled with and brimming with hope. Actually, hope is another key word that we find in the book of First Peter. Suffering, hope. And besides those key concepts of suffering and hope, there's, there's a, a, another, I think, key concept that permeates the book, and that's holiness. Holiness. And so all three of these key concepts are going to surface as we go through the book of First Peter. I think Peter gives us a theology of how to live holy lives in times of suffering and hardship and reminds us of the hope that is ours, encourages us to live 
even through such times. It's always useful, I think, when we start a new study to start with a 30,000-foot view, to start way up high and, and look at it from a, from a high point before diving into details. And so we're going to do that today. And it's always dangerous. I, I always struggle with these introductory messages because it's possible they could be dry. It's possible they could be, dare I say the word, boring. I, I, I don't want to say that word. And so I'm praying very hard that that is not the case today. Uh, as we look at this, we, we want to look at some very introductory things and uh, in doing that, we're going to ask ourselves some of the questions we often ask ourselves when we start something like this. And that's why the title of today's message is Who, What, Where, and When. Uh, because that's what we're going to do. We're going to look, first of all, at who. Who wrote it, and who did he write it to. Secondly, we're going to look at where and when was it written, just briefly. And then we're going to look at what. What was it written for? We might say why there. Why was it written? What was the goal? What was the author's intent? And so let's take just a few moments today and bear with me. Listen real hard uh, so that it doesn't seem dry and boring to you. But uh, listen, and uh, let, we'll see if we can answer some of those questions. So first of all, who? Who wrote this letter of First Peter? Now, for some reason, there are those who ask this question. There are some, for some reason, there are those who question who the author of First Peter was. Uh, I, I never understand that, but if you read commentaries and you... You study this sort of thing, you'll find that there are some people, and some of them very smart people, who, who question that kind of thing. My mind goes back to uh, a time in, my, in one of my uh, uh, Bible classes at, at college when one of the professors was talking about uh, introducing one of Paul's epistles. I don't remember which one it was, but it was one of Paul's epistles where his authorship is questioned. And uh, the professor stood in front of the classroom and he said to all of us, take out your copy of the scripture and hold it up. Turn to this page. And he had his turn there. And he said, now read together the first word. And, of course, this chorus went up. Paul. And he said, who wrote the letter? And we could do the same thing here this morning, could we not? Take out your copy of the scripture and look at the first word. And what would it be? Peter. I don't know why it is that some people question these sorts of things. But uh, some do. If that, if Peter is not the author of this book, then that is a lie. And we know that our Bible does not contain that sort of information. And so I have no trouble concluding that Peter was the author. And in this case, the, the arguments that people make against his authorship are very, very weak uh, and very easily dismissed. So most people agree without question that Peter was the one who wrote this letter. He's the author of this book. He's also the author of the next one in the Bible, Second Peter, even though they question that one more. It was the Apostle Peter. He claimed the name Peter in verse number one. That was the name that Jesus gave him. It was the name that was used by nobody else in the Bible. I don't know if you know this, but there's only one Peter in the Bible. And uh, he also called himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. That really narrows it down. He called himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ. That narrows it down, and he called himself an elder in chapter 5 and verse number 1. So who wrote the letter? This letter was written by Peter, and, and, and I would say by one of the most fascinating characters in all of the Bible, Peter. Let's remind ourselves a little bit about who this dude was. Peter. Peter, he was called from a life of fishing to follow Jesus and fish for men. John chapter 1, verse number 42, he brought him to Jesus. And now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated as stone. Jesus changed his name. 
His given name was Simon, but Jesus called him Cephas. Now, Cephas is Aramaic. Peter is the Greek version of it. But both of those words mean the same thing. They mean a stone or a rock. Warren Wiersbe said, perhaps the two names suggest a Christian's two natures. An old nature, Simon, that is prone to fail, and a new nature, Peter, that can give victory. As Simon, he was only another human piece of clay, but Jesus Christ made a rock out of him. Peter. Peter, who was one of twelve men Jesus chose to be apostles. Luke chapter 6, verse 13, when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. <coughs> Notice that he used that term in verse number 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ. He was one of only twelve that had that. And he was preeminent in that group. There are several lists of the apostles in our Bible, and in every case, Peter, uh, his name always appears first. Peter, an apostle. Peter, who came to recognize who Jesus was and said so in his great confession at Caesarea Philippi. Matthew chapter 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Linda, if we go to Israel, you'll get to go to this place and you'll get to see where he made that great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, whom Jesus blessed and foretold that he would be given the keys to the kingdom. Very interesting passage of Scripture. Matthew 16, verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. Peter, he was at times a man of amazing faith. Amazing faith, even to the point of walking on the water. I think that is a, a, a little vignette in his life that, that people kind of gloss over. But I think it's a, it's a picture of what amazing faith he actually had. You'll recall the story in the midst of a furious storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had remained on the land and the disciples were at sea. And all of a sudden they looked up in the midst of these raging waves. And here came Jesus walking on the water toward them. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now that is an astonishing thing. I, I, I compare my level of faith when God asks me to do something to that. Uh, would I jump out of the boat and walk on the water? He was a man of amazing faith. A man of amazing high points. And yet, in spite of all these high points, he was also very prone to some weaknesses, wasn't he? One of which was his tendency to overconfidence. He was a bloviator, if you, like, if you know that word. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Overconfidence, one of his weak points. And yet... He was a man's man. He was brave. He was strong. He showed great bravery uh, in, in, in at least one way in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. He wasn't very accurate with his sword, but he was brave with it. 
at least at that particular moment. He was one man in the garden when they came to, to when Judas came to, to betray Jesus with a whole cohort of soldiers with swords and spears. One man whipped out his sword and began slashing through the air in defense of his Lord. There was, there was some bravery there. You can't deny it. But while he was brave, he also knew fear. He also was at times a ridiculous scaredy cat. Famously becoming one of two men who denied and betrayed and failed Jesus. Him and Judas Iscariot. He denied Jesus three times on the night of his betrayal. History has judged this as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, denials of all time. And certainly Peter thought it was. Peter remembered the words of Jesus who had said to him before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. His story could have ended with that terrible failure. I'm glad it didn't, because Jesus wasn't done with him. And as Phil preached just a few weeks ago in the final verses of John's Gospel, we find Peter repenting and forgiven and focused and sent forth once again. You remember that passage, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus forgave his, dis, his denial and, and recommissioned him to the ministry to which he had been called. And then in the book of Acts, we see old Peter forging ahead, using the keys to the kingdom to open the gospel to the, the Jews in Acts chapter 2, to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and then to the Gentile world in Acts chapter 10. Later on, we see him in Jerusalem participating in the, the great Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. And frankly, after that, we don't see him much at all. He kind of disappeared from the scene. It's mentioned a couple of places. Paul mentioned him in Galatians. And, of course, we have his two, uh, two books here, First and Second Peter. We believe he died in Rome. Uh, history seems to indicate that. We know and he knew how he was going to die because Jesus had told him that in John chapter 21. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And, 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 and everything that I've ever read about that, everybody believes that what Jesus was saying right there was, you will be crucified. That picture of stretching forth your hands was recognized as a image of crucifixion. And tradition, tradition does tell us that he was crucified in Rome. Tradition says he was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross. We, the Bible does not speak to this, and so we cannot be certain of that. The Romans did do that sort of thing. Some people say that he, he was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross because he asked the Romans, I don't want to be crucified the same way that my Lord was. Well, that's almost certainly not true because the Romans did not take requests when it came to crucifixion. The idea was all about as much embarrassment and, 
and humiliation as possible. And so that is un- uh, certainly probably not true. The fact that he was crucified upside down, he may have been, but it would have been their choice, not his. I, I don't know about you, but there's, there's just few guys in the Bible that I am more anxious to meet in heaven than Peter. I mean, he's one of the giants. He's mentioned 75 times in the Gospels. He's mentioned 181 times in the New Testament as a whole. He was one of Jesus' most intimate companions. And yet, this guy was, was, was a man of such inconsistency. Strong, yet weak. Brave, yet fearful. He was an example of what a follower of Jesus Christ ought to be most of the time. Sometimes he fell short of that. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to him. I see myself in him, most notably in his failures and inconsistencies and weaknesses. But here's why I, I draw all this out and why, why I think we need to think about this, because it's important to realize that all that happened in Peter's long life as a believer had made something out of him. It had made a pastor out of him. This is a very pastoral letter, First Peter. When he wrote in chapter 5, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. When he wrote that, he wrote it from experience. He wrote it from a heart shaped by that experience. When he wrote about suffering, he wrote as one who had suffered. When he wrote about living through periods of suffering, he wrote from his own experience. He knew what falling down and getting back up meant. He knew what it meant to shepherd the flock. Jesus had told him to do that when he recommissioned him in John chapter 21. And through the years, he had learned it and implemented it. And this letter, then, is a letter from a shepherd to the sheep. So who wrote this letter? Say it with me. Peter wrote this letter. And who did he write the letter to? Again, in verse number one, who was his target audience? To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Pilgrims who were living in five specific named areas there, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all of which were in what is today Turkey, Asia Minor. They were pilgrims. Now, depending on what translation of the English Bible you're holding In your hand there, that might be rendered sojourners or strangers or exiles or aliens or foreigners. They all basically mean the same thing. There's a Greek term there, uh, it's it's dispersion, uh, pilgrims of dispersion in the New King James Version. That comes from the Greek word diaspora. And that term, which does mean dispersion, most narrowly referred to Jews who were no longer living in Palestine. Jews who had been scattered and were living in other areas. But I think when Peter used it here, he's using it in a much broader way. I think he's referring to Jewish and Gentile Christians who were spread out, who uh, were living as God's people in the midst of a godless world. They were strangers. They were pilgrims. They were living in an alien culture. They were men and women who chose to stand for Jesus Christ, and that made them aliens and uh, strangers in the midst of a pagan society. And so if we think about that, that makes this letter true of all of us, doesn't it? 
It makes the audience of this letter all of us, because isn't it true that all believers are aliens and strangers and foreigners and pilgrims in a pagan land? Paul said to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he prayed in John chapter 17, said of his disciples, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. These were men who were foreigners, women who were foreigners, outcasts in their society. They were also men and women who were enduring or about to endure persecution and suffering. Most Bible scholars date this book somewhere around 64 to 65 A.D., which was either just before or during Nero's horrible persecution of Christians in Rome. Read about that sometime if you want to read about persecution of believers. Nero, who lit Christians on fire and used them as torchlights in his, in his garden. Terrible, terrible persecution. Most theologians agree that this, this book was written near the end of Peter's life because right about then was when Peter and Paul were both martyred uh, by Nero. So whether that persecution had already begun or was about to begun, and whether or not it had reached as far as from Rome to these outlying areas, we don't really know that, but it was coming. Peter believed it was coming. And so he was preparing them to help them through it. And so that persecution was one of the forms of suffering that he was dealing with and preparing them for. But, of course, they were already and always dealing with the type of persecution we all deal with. We all deal with certain levels of suffering. No matter who we are, Mis- being misunderstood, being maligned by the world, friends and family turning on us because they're try- we're trying to live holy lives for Jesus. All Christians face that sort of thing. And so, who wrote it? Peter. Who did he write it to? Pilgrims of the dispersion in those areas. And by extension, I'd say to us. So let's ask one final question. We've looked at who, and in there I also talked about where and when. Let's ask ourselves the question, what? What? What was Peter's purpose in writing? What was he trying to accomplish? What was his theme? I'll read a couple things from a couple commentators. One summarized it like this. He said, First Peter is about maintaining hope in the midst of suffering. Because Jesus himself suffered and because God can be trusted to put all things right, Peter counsels believers to maintain their faith in Jesus. Believers should do so even when they are being persecuted, mocked, and misunderstood. They should also imitate Jesus by enduring unjust suffering with grace. Hardships are bound to come in this life, but they do not have the last word. That's how one person summarized the whole teaching of this book. Here's another. He said, Peter's letter is a call to holiness in troubled times. And a recognition that despite suffering, discrimination, and ridicule, the path of holiness involves acceptance of our pain and an awareness that even suffering can be a gift from God. Suffering is clearly the key word in the book. We, we can't deny that. There are others, as I mentioned, that are key words, but that is clearly the key word. Is there a key verse? Is there a verse that we can look at in First Peter that kind of sums it all up? Interestingly... Uh, some books, when you study them, there will be a key verse that just jumps out, and most commentators agree this is the theme of the whole book. Uh, this one, it seemed like every commentary I picked up, they picked a different verse. And so, here's the one that I think it is. I think it's chapter 5, verse number 10. You might want to flip over there. Chapter 5, verse number 10. 
But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And so that last sentence is him saying, this is why I wrote. This is why I wrote. And, he said, and, and, and there I, he has that wonderful, what appears to be, a prayer. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and you. But if you're holding a different version of the Bible other than the New King James or the King James, you probably notice it's not... It's not a prayer. It's a statement of fact. It's a promise. Look at how the uh, ESV, for example, does that verse. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's a promise. It's a good thing that we can look forward to. The NLT says, In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore support and strengthen you and he will place you on a firm foundation. I think that is the key verse to this book. I think that's the theme that we're going to see developed all throughout. That, yeah, we're going to have to suffer for a while. There is an aspect of our life that involves suffering. And here's how we ought to live as we go through that period of time. But there's coming a day. Hallelujah, there's coming a day. When God is going to take care of all that, and all that suffering is going to be gone. We need to live holy lives through suffering and trust in the promise and hope that God will soon and very soon deliver us from it forever. I think that is perhaps the theme that we'll see developed throughout this whole book. So, is there any application of these things to ourselves today? Is there anything that uh, applies to us from this letter, which was written approximately 1,970 years ago? Anything that can help us today? Well, let me suggest a couple of realities. We've touched on them, but let's hit them again. As Christians, we are strangers in a strange land, just as these people were. I know that we used to say, I used to say, That here in America, we live in a Christian nation. Do you remember when we used to use that kind of terminology? We live in a Christian nation. We used to think that we were immune in this nation to the persecution and distress uh, that other believers go through in, in foreign lands. And the reality is we do not face anything like what some other believers do. We can go to Afghanistan today, and now that the Taliban have taken over again and are going door to door and dragging people out to torture and death who name the name of Christ, we, we don't face anything like that. But the growing intolerance toward Christianity is clear. You read the same news I do. You see the same stories that I do. You see the same trends that I do. I mean, even, even here in America, Christians are increasingly pilgrims. Sojourners, strangers, exiles, aliens, and foreigners. And, of course, that's really only true if we're trying to live for Jesus Christ. Many who claim allegiance to Christ and name the name of Christ really don't live like it. Many who call themselves Christians live lives that are indistinguishable from anybody else. And so they're probably not going to experience like that. Too many Christians live like Lot, don't they? Trying to blend in. Uh, look like everybody else. So if that's you, then you probably don't understand a word I'm saying. You don't understand what it means to live as a a pilgrim or a stranger or a foreigner. But if you take your faith seriously, 
And you know Jesus has called you out of that life into a life that's different. If you're trying to live for him, if your lifestyle is meant to reflect a rejection of the sin that once marked it and a reflection of the salvation that now defines it, you know what it feels like to be a pilgrim. You know what it feels like to be a foreigner in a strange land. You can relate to the songwriter who said, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. So as Christians, we are strangers in a strange land. And as such, Peter's first letter here does apply directly to us. It has teaching that is very, very helpful to us. It's a guidebook to help us in navigating through that experience. That's the first thought. The second thought would be this. As Christians, we do face suffering. We do face suffering. Now, now some of it is, is part of living in this broken world. I mean, we get sick. We suffer injuries, financial trials, relationships, sour, we hurt, we cry, we despair. This stuff happens in this world to both lost and saved, to both believers and unbelievers, to Christian and non. We are not immune to the pain and struggle of this world. Every week we have a midweek prayer meeting here at this church. Prayer requests flow into my inbox throughout the week or into my messages or whatever. And we make a list, and then on Wednesday night we pray for one another. So many of the requests that come in deal with the trials and troubles and hurts that people go through in this life. Let me just, let me just share a few, and I hope nobody would be upset with me if I share just a few of the ones that came in just this past week. Our brother and my brother-in-law, Al Hahn, who usually sits right over there. Uh, he's not here today because he underwent surgery to repair an aortic aneurysm. Second one he's had in his life. First one almost killed him. Came through the surgery fine, got home, and then experienced complications, started bleeding. They had to rush him back again. And uh, he was in the hospital again. He's home now. But uh, he went through some days there, didn't he? Of some difficulty. Our sister Lenny is sitting here today. Last week she was sitting out there. In front of the church, because she got whacked in the back by a, another car. Thankfully, she was uninjured. Her car was not. Bev Geibel, my wife's dear friend from Pennsylvania, she wrote and asked us to pray for her because she's undergoing chemotherapy and is really suffering from the side effects. And so we, we prayed for her. Becky Gromley, who comes here and, and who, who many of you know, has been struggling with some health problems, and the doctors can't figure it out. And so she's praying for help with that. Our brother Jeff Hansel, is he here somewhere? I don't see him yet today. He didn't submit any requests this week, but rather he submitted a praise. And his praise was, I praise God that I'm alive. And, and if you don't know Jeff, it might not be as meaningful to you, but Jeff just a few years ago suffered a terrible fall from a 50 feet up in a tree that very nearly killed him. And he's been in recovery from that for a long period of time. Changed his life forever. Our sister Sharon Hissom wrote to me this week, and she wanted to praise the Lord that recent medical tests have been positive and to thank the Lord that her husband, Butch, after five difficult back surgeries that had provided no relief in his years of terrible back pain, had finally received a treatment that might be helping him. For all these years, I think as long as I've been at this church, 
Butch Hissom has suffered terrible pain in Benton, and nobody's been able to give him any relief. There were names on the prayer list this past week that have been on it for a while now, for there have been people dealing with trials and suffering and troubles for a long period of time. Joe and Linda Miller are on our prayer list for weeks now. Trudy Neff, who, thank the Lord, is here with us today. We've been praying for her for so long. Dave Oblisk, Tom Cannon, Joe Suttle, so many others. Every Wednesday, every week, we pray for suffering saints, Christians who are going through trials. Whether that suffering is health-related or marriage-related or family-related or financially-related or job or anxiety or whatever it is, we're praying for people who are suffering. Because the fact is, as Christians, we face suffering in this world simply because we live in it. When we trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we were not immediately transported out of the realities of this world. We still live here. We were promised that someday that exact thing would happen. But it's not yet. It's not today. We are still here and we're still living with the same realities of this life that we had before we were saved. And if we're striving to live as Christians and live in such a way as to point others to the salvation that they could have in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, there's a whole other level of suffering that we're going to endure in this world. I mentioned it earlier. Stick your neck out for Jesus Christ and and you'll find out what happens you'll find out that there's a whole another world of suffering out there. Standing for Christ impacts family relationships. Families don't always understand. They often fight against your faith. Friends that once hung with you constantly, uh, they, they, may, they may drift away and after a while just disappear from your life. They don't like the new you. Society looks down on Christians. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia said, God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools. And he has not been disappointed. If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ. And have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Suffering the contempt of the sophisticated world is something any believer who sticks his neck out for Christ Any Christian who takes his or her faith seriously knows about. C.S. Lewis said we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. C.S. Lewis was right. Paul wrote to Timothy, yea, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I don't think we do any harm to the Scripture to leave that last word off and just stop it right there. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. So, there's not a lot of smiles in the room right now, I'm noticing. But here's the gist of it all. Peter's audience lived a long time ago in a world far removed from us. And yet the realities they faced are just as contemporary to us today as if he had written directly to us. The sort of things they faced... Well, the sort of things we face. The realities of their struggles ring true with us today. They suffered for Jesus, and so too do Christians today. They dealt with the hardship and pain of this life, and so too do Christians today. We need, just as they needed, a theology of how to live in such a time. And that's what we're going to get from First Peter. So I'm going to encourage you. This is just an introduction today, but I'm going to encourage you to come along with us on this journey. Encourage you to be faithful. 
because we're going to be reminded as we go through, uh, go through this study that when we go through this stuff in this world, we haven't reached the end of the story yet. We're going to be encouraged to remember God's promise that he will bring us through. I do think that promise is key. You might want to underline that in your Bible. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore strength and confirm and ground you. Take hope in that. Most of all, we're going to learn how to live in the midst of it, how to get through it until that day comes when we see that promise fulfilled.